Zach, that's right. Brandy Garner will step into her new role as interim CEO of the county jail. She tells me she's been looking forward to this decision and can't wait to start making improvements. Brandy Garner was named interim CEO of the troubled Oklahoma County Jail in December, with plans to increase hiring standards, training, and safety for both detention officers and those held in the jail. On this episode of Listen Frontier, Garner speaks about her new role, as well as her hopes to turn around the jail, where about 40 people have died since the jail trust took over a little over two years ago. I'm Brianna Bailey, managing editor for The Frontier. I'm here with Major Brandy Garner, who was recently named interim CEO of the Oklahoma County Detention Center. Um, a trust uh, was formed two years ago and took over operations of the jail from the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office. Um, a lot has happened since this, that time um, that the frontier has kind of covered some of it. There has been, of course, an ongoing pandemic. There's been, um, you know, ongoing problems with uh, staffing at the jail. There has been um, a successful uh, ballot measure to build a new jail. And now we've got new leadership. And so... Uh, uh, Major Gardner is going to talk with us today about um, what her goals are for improving the facility and a little bit about um, how she hopes to do that. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first, I thought we could kind of get into um, how you first started um, with the Oklahoma County Detention Center um, you started as the head of security, is that, is that right, about a year ago? I did. I started at the end of January, and I was brought over as the major, which is the chief of security. Basically, I oversee all the operations of the security functions of the facility and um, kind of hit the ground running, and just I've been you know, plugging away ever since, trying to make improvements where I can, and of course now I've been named interim uh, CEO and it's just increased my capacity to be able to make the changes that need to be made. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in jail operations, because um, you, you previously worked at the Cleveland County Detention Center, and how, how did you get involved in law enforcement and want to work in a jail? Well, um, I'm not sure where you want me to start. <laughs> Maybe the beginning. Um, so I wanted to be in law enforcement, and I was having a hard time getting my foot in the door. It was back when we didn't have um, hiring issues in law enforcement and corrections. So I started out as a reserve for the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, and as part of that, I went through training with the uh, Reserve Academy at Cleveland County. And during that time, they kind of convinced me to kind of come over there and work for them which I did eventually, hesitantly, because I really wanted to be a patrol deputy. I wanted to work on the streets. I wanted to be the person that was catching the quote-unquote bad guys. And um, I was promised that if I worked in the jail for a while, that would happen. Well, when I got into the jail, I realized that I loved working with that population. I felt like that was where I was supposed to be. That was where I needed to be. And so I took the time and effort to learn every single function of that facility and of jail operations. Went to numerous training um, opportunities and progressed through the ranks. And up until a little over a year ago, that's, that's where I, I was. 
And working with the Oklahoma County Detention Center and now as interim CEO, um, you know, I, there has been, you know, ongoing operational challenges here, um, you know, high, high rate of death, there's been escapes, there was a hostage situation two years ago. Um, what, I mean, it's a, it's a lot. So what, like, what is kind of, what are kind of your goals for improvement or, or in the past year that you've worked here that you, how you see you could improve things? Well, you know, I think we should just talk about the elephant in the room, the deaths. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely want to see that number reduced. Mm -hmm. I think it's unreasonable to expect that it would be zero, although that would be my ultimate goal. So I'm looking at ways that we can do that um, as far as reduction of our mortality rate. And it all starts at intake. We have to make sure that we are only accepting the people that we can care for and provide for here. And uh, that starts with a comprehensive medical screening. So that's one of the first things that I changed here. Uh, it was also something that uh, I later found out was written in a report from the National Institute of Corrections when they came in to um, assess our facility. And so, you know, that was one of the first things that I've done. Um, and then just looking at the overall operations, how do we get them out of the cells more? Um, the longer that they're out of the cells, the less likely they are to um, have significant mental health crises and that's important to me as well. Um, there's a number of things that we can do. It's just a matter of looking at what we're doing, reevaluating our processes and changing them based on best practices and revising our policies as necessary. So yeah, there has been almost 40 deaths at the jail since the, the trust that now oversees it took over. There was, I mean, there was a high rate of deaths even before that under the sheriff's office as well. There was 16 deaths in 2022, and now um, in January there was the first uh, death of uh, 2023. Um, I read I read an editorial you wrote in the Oklahoman where you talked about um, handling some of this with uh, increasing the number of medical OR bonds. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of talk for people that don't know what a medical OR bond is, like just you know very briefly what that is and how that would help sure so as a jail administrator you know one of the responsibilities is to manage your population not everybody that is here needs to be here for an extended length of time and one of the ways that we're able to facilitate that is through the use of medical own recognizance bonds and really what that is, is we identify somebody that has a chronic care issue or requires a level of care that's above the community standard of care that we are currently providing. And we'll send over the information to the courts. And ultimately the judge looks at that, looks at the facts of the case that are known to them at the time, and they make a determination on whether or not they can allow them to be released back into the community. A key component of that is making sure that we are not just releasing them to the community without any type of follow-up. We're working really hard with community partners, diversion programs, uh, team is one of them that we use a lot to kind of keep them accountable in the community, but also provide them resources to deal with whatever issues that they're dealing with, which you know could be medical, could be substance abuse, mental health. It could be that they don't have a job, they're not employable, they feel like they're not employable. It could be a number of things. 
are a lot of times people who get a medical warrant are they released to a hospital? Sometimes they can be. Um, if we have somebody that is in the hospital for uh, a length of time mm -hmm. and they seem to be declining or, you know, it just seems like this is just, we don't know what else to do with this person, but we are tying up our resources, our staff, and meanwhile, the family is not able to visit with them, we'll seek a medical OR in that case. Sometimes we are able to get it, sometimes we're not. It just really depends on how serious their condition is, what their charges are, of course. You know, if they are here on violent charges and they have a history of, you know, uh, criminal activity, it's more difficult to secure it in a medical OR. Right. I mean, some, some part of that is out of your control, right? I mean, it, the judge has to approve it, and the, the district attorney's office has to kind of agree, usually has to kind of agree to go along with it, right? Yeah. So is, and I know I have heard, um, you know, some people say, you know, previously, like our, our DA's office has been unwilling to, to, to you know, sign off on, on these medical OR bonds a lot of instances. Is that something you're working on or well I I don't know you know coming into this I don't really yeah. know the the history I can't really speak for you know the previous DA but I know that um, DA Behenna is working with us very well and her ADAs are working with us very well to I think they see the value in these programs that we have available in Oklahoma County and that they're willing to utilize them um, as necessary in a way that's not going to jeopardize the safety of the public, but at some point we have to really address what what are the underlying issues? Why are people being brought into the facility in the first place? Mm -hmm. And my hope is that we start addressing those proactively. I mean, yes, we can identify them here, but once they get released, maybe maybe we can keep them from coming back. Recidivism is, you know, it, it's all of our responsibility to, I think, try to reduce that. Um, so, uh, with the, with the medical OR, OR bonds, um, is, is some of it about cost? Because I mean, you have a, you have a finite amount of resources in terms of like staff. When, when you send somebody like the hospital, I mean, do you have to, you have to have staff there with them, right? We do. Yeah. We do. So that's gotta be a strain on your resources. And then you also have to pay for a person's medical care. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and we do have a program where we utilize off-duty law enforcement to help when we know somebody has been admitted to the hospital. But we, you know, with the identification of people that are needing medical uh, care that is above the level of care that we can provide here, we've had a number of increases in people that are being sent out to the hospital. And it's no secret, I have a staffing crisis right now. I would. I would say it's not really a crisis yet, but we're, we're headed down that way if I can't get more people in the door. And um, every time we send someone out, an officer is taken off of the floors to go uh, sit with the individual and you know, provide the security aspect of that. So, Right. And, you know, for people those listening might not know, I mean, a lot of people who come into the jail, their, their health is very poor. Right? Terrible. Yeah. We have... Uh, we have a lot of people that come in that have long-term substance abuse issues and chronic uh, conditions as a result of that. We have, surprisingly, we have a larger number of elderly people that come in that already, you know, they're in poor health. Um, 
and you know mental health I can't get away from talking about that mm -hmm. significant portion of our population is mentally ill or they have a mental health diagnosis yeah and let's yeah let's you mentioned the staffing mm -hmm. um, you know that I know that's been an ongoing challenge for the jail so so yeah talk kind of talk about what the situation is and some of the things that you're looking some of the solutions to that that you're looking at well, we are lower than we were this time last year, mm -hmm. and you know I'm interested in recruiting people that are here for the right reasons. I think for a while we were just interested in filling our ranks with people that were just needing a job and they weren't really in into the job itself. And that kind of shows with our attrition and people just walking off the job. So. I've started increasing our standards, which I know is going to make it more difficult to get the numbers up, but I, my thought on this is if we have the quality staff and we treat them right, then they're going to want to stay and we're going to have them here uh, for the right reasons. And you know, when I took over, there were a few people that um, needed, you know, needed to be held accountable. and. Unfortunately, sometimes that results in termination. But moving forward, we do have quite a few people that are in the process of applying and they're just kind of going through all of the steps. I think we have 45 that were in the pipeline. I don't know what that number is right now. Mm -hmm. um, I know that nine of them had applied to be detention officers and that's what I really need. Mm -hmm. I need detention officers. I guess we have other positions available. We have clerk positions, maintenance positions. But our detention officers are the ones that are the boots on the ground, dealing with our population and tending to their needs, and I need to make sure that I have enough of them on the floor. And the other thing that I'm doing is looking at our organizational structure and seeing if I can't make some changes there to make better use of the staff that we have. Just be more efficient. I mean, efficiency is kind of a goal of mine in every area of this facility. You said the staffing levels are lower than they were a year ago. What what were they a year ago versus now? Uh, roughly, because uh, I, I don't have that figure. Yeah, that's fine. I would say probably three twenty, and right now I'm at two ninety two. Okay. Yeah. So. And you you said you terminated some people. Can you share a little bit about why or? Well, I can't really discuss okay. the personnel issues. <laughs> yeah. I am, the biggest thing I can say is that the way that we treat people matters, and it's important to me that we are treating people with respect and compassion and that we are professionals. Mm -hmm. And if I have somebody here that is not exhibiting those values and they are not um, here to do the work that they're being paid to do, then I feel like our organization is better off um, parting ways with them. Mm -hmm. Um, how many people did you term, did you have to terminate? I will just say a handful. A handful, okay. And some of them did happen prior to me taking over, but it was it was a necessary thing. And culture is huge here. You're talking 30, 40 years of a culture that it's difficult to change. Um, I think I read a stat that it takes three to five years to change a, a culture, and I fully believe that. It sounds easy. Um, but when you start changing things, there's a lot of resistance, especially with um, law enforcement and corrections in general. They just, you know, it, it, change is scary. This is why we've been doing it for years. We need to continue doing it that way. Um, but I like to think outside the box. 
and try new things. And I think a lot of that has, it kind of speaks for itself on the results that I've gotten so far. The time out of cells is huge. Before I took over, they were getting an hour a day, maybe three days a week. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've seen the inside of our pods, but we have 50 cells, sometimes up to 100 people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you're only getting out an hour a day and you only have a handful of showers, how does everybody shower? You know, things like that. You know, we had we had to make some changes, and there was a lot of resistance. But ultimately, the result is every day, four days a week, at minimum, they're getting out for four hours, six hours, seven hours, to the point where they're wanting to go back inside the cells because they're bored, which is another obstacle that I'm going to tackle in the future. But baby steps. Um, yeah, what other parts of this job do you find rewarding? Or you have found rewarding? Are there parts? Yeah, there are. Yeah. I think it changes based on your level within the organization. Like when I started out as a detention officer, I found it really rewarding to uh, almost mentor you know, somebody that was in custody and maybe giving them avenues of how maybe they could do something different, helping them. I found that very rewarding, getting to know some of the their stories. And I will say this, not to get off on a tangent, but one of the things that I recognized very early on when I started doing this job is that every single person in custody has experienced trauma in their life. And it wasn't until a few later years later um, that I started working in this career field that I learned something about um, adverse childhood experiences and how that relates to future incarceration, chronic health, and it really, it all makes sense. If if we were to work on reducing those, I think that we would see our inmate population uh, get lower. But I found that part really rewarding. And then as I get, um, as I've climbed the ranks, I feel like it's really rewarding watching some of our younger officers grow into their careers and gain confidence and learn more about their positions. and. It's almost like they're your kids, you know? You, you watch them grow and develop, and a lot of times I'm really proud. Sometimes I'm a little disappointed, but it's, I find that really rewarding. Um, so right now you're the interim CEO, but you, you want to um, stay in this job permanently, is that right? I do. Okay. I do want to be in it permanently. What, what would your goals be for like the next year? Like what? The next year, uh, obviously, I want to get our staffing numbers up. Mm -hmm. I want to continue to change our culture into one that is more compassionate and uh, professional. And I want to start paving the way for us to be in a new facility. We cannot operate a new facility the way that we are operating this facility. And a lot of that is a structural thing. You know, there's going to be changes that are going to result just because of the structure itself, but um, it all goes back to culture. I, I need them to understand that the way that we have been doing things in the past is not necessarily best practice. At one point it probably was, but we, we need to start looking in the future. There's a big push for diversion and just doing things differently. You know, this facility is designed I don't know if it was the intent, but in my mind, this facility is designed as a lockdown facility. Every cell, every pod has cell doors, and 
there, you know, the newer facilities have open dorms and you're a lot, you know, you can do a lot more with that. And I need them to start shifting that mindset. And part of that is things that I've already worked on, like the time out of cells that was new to them, having to have them move their offices into the uh, housing monitor office, the into the pod itself was a huge change. But it's kind of getting them used to that direct supervision model that is better for everyone. It's safer, you know, so. I know that's something that they have talked about doing for a while. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the staffing was always like a critical, like they just, the resources weren't there. How, what, what would you speak to that? How, what would you, how, what would you say to that? I think if you look at the way that it was done before, where you had offices that were more or less in the corridors mm -hmm. between the pods, I think, yes, if you wanted to keep it that way, absolutely staffing would be an issue. But by moving those offices into the pods, you've kind of eliminated that problem. Now, they're not directly in the pods as they would be with direct supervision, but it's closer. So when they're out, they do have that security aspect. They have eyes on. And if they have to step out momentarily, they're still being observed by camera. And that's another thing that I've changed a little bit um, towards the, the end of our transition to this model is giving camera access to the people on those floors so they can monitor if somebody needs to step out of the office just for a moment to use the restroom or, or whatever they need to do. Um, it's not perfect, but it's closer to that direct supervision model, and we're doing it with the low numbers that we have. So, Do you feel like you have the funding that you need to run this facility? Um, you know, I know the budget for the jail hasn't increased. It's been flat for the past several years. The county has limited resources. It's, it's basically property taxes that, that yeah. finance this place. I don't have the funding. Uh, I would love to be able to, you know, part of recruiting good staff is being able to pay them a wage that is livable. And we're doing as good as we can right now with that. But as you know, the cost of living has increased exponentially and it, it's costing my people a lot of money just to make ends meet. And so that's one aspect of it. And I'm not sure if you followed the trust meeting or not, but I'm currently facing a $1.6 million deficit. Now $1.1 million of it is approved ARPA funds um, that we're waiting for reimbursement from the county. But I still have to make up that other $500,000. And I'm not sure where that's going to come from yet. I'm looking at options to reduce our spending in a variety of ways. But, I mean, I'm kind of late to that game. And so we're going to have to look at it um, really closely when we're preparing our budget for next year. And some of it is legal fees. Uh, I, I say some of it. A, a good portion of it is legal fees that I hope are going to be reduced in the future. So, but yeah, we absolutely do need more funding. I think that's all my questions, unless do you want to ask anything? Or? Well, I just, one thing that I was curious about was, you know, there's a lot of talk about the safety of the inmates in the jail and the health of the inmates in the jail, but yeah. sort of the structure of the building itself I think lends itself to being, you know, we've the last time we came for a tour, we talked a good deal about the the dangers to the detention officers too. I mean, just the way that the pods are, are yeah. built. 
Um, and is and you talk about staffing issues and yeah. pay is part of that, but also the I mean the last time we were here they talked about that the safety of the detention officers being an issue sometimes too in recruiting staff or, or retaining staff. Is there anything you can do as an administrator about uh, uh, from that perspective? As far as like increasing the safety, uh, more staff is always better than none. And, and I and keep going back to that, but I think the root of our problem is the fact that we don't have enough people here. Um, I mean, certainly, I think there's always ways to improve the safety. I just, you know, sitting and thinking about it. Um, the building is sort of built how it's built. I right. Mean, you can't change the that. The elevators are an issue. If there is a call for help, it could take a minute for somebody to get there. And, of course, they prioritize the elevators, but you're, you're talking going up 13 floors and down 13 floors to get to wherever that's needed. Um it's just, it, it isn't, you're right, it isn't a safe building. And the way that it was designed from the grid ceilings in some of the pods is, it, anybody that's ever worked in a jail would see that as a security issue. You know, they can take the pieces of the grid and use that for a shank or, you know, a shiv. Uh, that's just one aspect of it. The fact that we don't have um, adequate you know, cell windows, they're small windows, they can cover up a window with a sheet of paper and that's not safe for the the people that are in our care and it's not safe for our officers as well. An officer needs to check on that person and they can't see what they're going to get themselves into. They open that door and there's no telling what is on the other side of that door. And on the other side of that, it's really hard to see within themselves to see what they're doing, even if there's not something covering those windows. So. We've, we've tried to incentivize following the rules as much as possible, using commissary as, a, you know, if, if you're following the rules, you'll get commissary. If we catch you violating the rules, then you're not going to get commissary for this week. So next week, do better. And that seems to have helped a lot. But, I mean, there's, there's so many issues with the building. And, and just, I would love to have full windows in the doors. So you could see what's going on very quickly and easily from the floor instead of having, you know, to just come upon whatever you come upon. And what is the starting pay for, for, for a detention officer here? Like, what does it start at? Um, it's nearly, you had asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say it's thirty ninety one a month Yeah. for the first uh, 90 days and then you get a bump in pay and then at a year I do know if you have no disciplinary on your record you have good attendance uh, it comes out to be like $42,000 a year as a corporal and you're promoted to a corporal automatically after a year with good uh, good performance do you, would you like to you know pay people more to attract more people or? yeah yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the way I look at it we're the biggest county in the state mm -hmm. and we have the biggest facility in the state and this is arguably the highest liability for the county we should be paying people more than any other county in the state and we should be fully funded so we can afford to attract the quality applicants that we need in order to run a safe facility and so yeah Money, money is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about the cost of lawsuits and stuff like that on the back end, and 
something sometimes you can cure on the front end by paying people more and getting better people in and it prevents those problems, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about or mention? I'm looking at a couple of different types of training that we can bring our officers. CIT, I already have, um, I think, over 20 people that are CIT certified. I want to increase that number. I'm working with the Mental Health Association to get trauma-informed response training, which will be amazing. And we are also, on the other side of that, um, I have Mac Mullings. He's our program coordinator. He's working on getting them to um, conduct training on with the inmate population on trauma. So both sides of, uh, you know, should know a little bit more about trauma and how that correlates to how we deal with things and, and the situations that we're dealing with in here. And then another thing, it's kind of a lofty goal, but I want to get the active bystandership for law enforcement training, ABLE training here, because I think it's important. Uh, it speaks to accountability. So any officer at any level can point out uh, the wrongdoings of another officer without any repercussions. It, it teaches you how to give and receive that criticism. Mm -hmm. I think it's important. We have to hold each other accountable here. And I tell my staff all the time, if you see me doing something wrong and I may test you, I want you to point it out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do good. Sometimes maybe not so much. But Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Absolutely. Thank you. You have your work cut out for you. I do. I do, for sure.